Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And our guest today has a long history of investing in a lot of these uh, big ideas, a lot uh, of very profitable investments in these big ideas as well. Uh, her name is Vanessa Colella, and she comes to us from Citigroup. Uh, Vanessa is Citi's chief innovation officer and leads the Citi Ventures and Citi Productivity teams. Uh, Vanessa's goal is to accelerate and discover new sources of value by championing innovation so the city can compete more effectively in a world of technological, behavioral, and societal change. The City Ventures team drives innovation by exploring, incubating, and investing in new ideas and partnering with category-defining startups to help people, businesses, and communities thrive. Before joining City as Chief Innovation Officer, she led their venture investing and D10X group at City Ventures and ran marketing for City's North American Consumer Bank. Uh, she joined Citibank in 2010 from U.S. Venture Partners, where she was an entrepreneur in residence. Uh, prior, Vanessa was the head of North America Marketing and SVP of Insights at Yahoo, uh, where she was responsible for developing and executing their consumer data strategy. She was previously a partner at McKinsey & Company as well. Uh, she received her master's degree from Columbia University here in New York uh, and MIT, as well as a PhD from MIT's Media Lab, and as Vanessa may or may not know, Citigroup uh, also has ties here into Skybridge. Uh, Anthony, who is hosting today's talk, uh, was able to acquire Citigroup's alternative investments unit after the global financial crisis in 2010. So we have Citigroupers among us here uh, at Skybridge. So it's great to have you on. And, and obviously, we're great friends with the team at Citigroup. As I mentioned, the host for today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with no further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Anthony for the interview. He says that now, Vanessa, that I'm the host of the interview, but he's going to try to outshine me for the next 45 minutes. It's just so you know how this works, okay? Am I supposed to keep score? Yeah, not really. You know, you're you're a fellow boomer like me, okay? We're competing against these millennials. It's two on one. I'm pretty confident that you and I can take him. Vanessa, by, by the end of the show, you won't be needing to keep score. Let's just, let's leave it at that. Oh, you see that? He'll be running up the score on me. See that? It's, it's a brutal, it's brutal, Vanessa. But first of all, congratulations on everything you've done. Uh, and Darcy, just for the record, we've established who the smartest person is on this salt talk, okay, we could take your IQ and my IQ, multiply it by four, and we're not reaching Vanessa. So, Vanessa, I want—I'm—I'm I'm more interested in your family of origin, if you don't mind, and your career arc. Where—where where did you get all this drive and ambition, and when did you start to think that your career was going to unfold with this trajectory? Um, so, I grew up uh, in a very small town in Wisconsin. And um, I guess, like many people in the Midwest, was raised to believe that you work hard and then learned over the course of my life, it's work hard. And, and I feel like I've been very fortunate and very lucky. So I, um, as some people know, I started my career as part of the Charter Corps of Teach for America um, and have done, as, as was mentioned earlier by John, I've been able to do a bunch of other things since then. But, uh, but I think 
you know, have been really fortunate to be involved in lots of major scale transformation, which is what I enjoy. And so let's talk about City Ventures for a second. Um, what was this small town, by the way? Where, where Wausau. Wausau, okay. So you- you're, you're old enough, Anthony, to remember the uh, advertisements on 60 Minutes of yeah. how to spell Wausau. If you can't find it, I'll find a clip for you. No, no, I am old enough. And see, John is smiling right now because that was a shot to my kneecaps, okay, referencing my age. That's fine. I can take it, though. I'm, uh, you know- a little sensitive, but I'll be I'll be able to get over. So you've eaten a lot of cheese curds, though, in your life, though, yes? Absolutely. Yeah, my first partner, uh, when we left Goldman Sachs, his name is Andy Bozart. His father worked for Alice Chalmers, which was a farm equipment company up in Wisconsin, and they lived in, in Greendale. So I've been to my share of Milwaukee Brewer games, uh, and I own one share of the Green Bay Packers. See, that that's as close as I can get to Wisconsin, and I've been... I've been eating cheese curds, which is sort of obvious. So let's go to City Ventures for a second, because you've done some phenomenal things in your career and you've done some phenomenal things at City Ventures. So tell us a little bit about City Ventures. Tell us what you're looking for. And then this is sort of that Simon Cowell question about the X factor. You've been very successful in identifying that in companies so tell us a little bit about City Ventures and then tell us how you find that X factor. Sure, thank you. So City Ventures, we really do a couple of things, um, each of which sort of come together to think about how do we accelerate innovation, accelerate growth, uh, both for the company and for our clients. Um, first of all, we do our venture, uh, venture capital, our equity investing, um, almost all of it for the company. Um, and in that, as you just referenced, you know, we're looking for just looking for entrepreneurs who are really trying to change the world, who are trying to think about what it is that could, could make the world better in the financial services sector, whether that's safety and soundness, whether that's you know, fraud prevention and data or more customer facing types of technologies. Um, and you know, as you might imagine, we, we end up working with a lot of those entrepreneurs at City where we're collaborating with them to bring their products and services to market. Um, we also, as part of City Ventures, run an internal incubator called D10X. Um, to the X Factor point, this is built around the idea that you know, entrepreneurs want to change the world. Uh, we've got over 200,000 employees globally at City, and they want to be part of a force for positive change also. Uh, but of course, we are a highly regulated bank, so we can't have everyone just coming in every day and experimenting, um, we've had to create a setting whereby employees can bring their ideas forward um, and we can test out those ideas in a way that doesn't introduce any incremental risk to our clients or our company. Um, and lastly, we run a group called The Studio, which is really mostly thinking about how would you redefine banking? What if you opened the aperture a little bit and thought more broadly about financial services? So I'll give you just two quick examples there, then we can talk about the X factor. Um, two things we've done in studio, we started a, a group a couple of years ago called CUPID, which stands for City University Partnerships in Innovation and Discovery, and really was all focused on how do we bring diversity into the financial services sector? And we focus on many different types of diversity, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, also different kinds of backgrounds, right? I don't have a banking background, as you heard. I'd never worked in a bank before I came to City. And what we find is that people who are passionate about 
computer science or data science or design, they don't necessarily know that there are lots of different places that they could use those skills, for instance, in financial services. So we bring a wide variety of people into the bank um, with the idea that we can give them a window on what a career might look like. And we can talk about some of the other data-driven platforms that we've launched as well. And in terms of X Factor, you know, I have an amazing group of investors on my team. Um, they they come from investing. So, you know, a lot of I think people think you know venture capital is very sexy. So, so isn't it neat? It's it's a lot of block and tackle work, right? It's building networks, it's it's trying to make sure that you're finding entrepreneurs who you know, maybe are being overlooked by other venture capitalists and, and expanding beyond sort of the obvious places. Um, so it's a lot of, I mean, it used to be a lot of coffees. Uh, now it's a lot of Zoom chats. Uh, and it's really being an expert in your field, having a thesis about where the world is going, and then kind of rolling up your sleeves and proving that, as you know, Anthony, proving that it's not just about the money, right? The money is important, but also how can we help these entrepreneurs create jobs, grow their companies, um, have the impact that they're trying to achieve. Well, we, we totally agree on that, but you're you're doing something that is cutting edge and unique, if you don't mind me saying it so, because you're, you're sitting in what you just described as a highly regulated company that has structure and layers of bureaucracy to protect its employees, to protect its customers, and obviously to adhere to the governmental strictures on the company. And yet you're sitting at the forefront of identifying trends and cutting entrepreneurs that are literally at the cutting edge of different things. So how are you managing that, Vanessa? Like, how do you get to get that feel for where the next trend is or where things are going as it relates to fintech and, and the future uh, from a venture perspective? Yeah, it's a really important question. I think, you know, sometimes people assume, oh, you're in innovation, like you must stay on top of everything. And what I would say to all of your listeners is no one can stay on top of everything, right? It's, it's just a, a mental impossibility at this point. There's too much information. So we try, I try and think about with the team, what themes do we think are going to be important? And the nice thing is because I have the privilege of running a number of different things as part of City Ventures, I get signals about those themes from different places, right? It could be from startups or venture capitalists that we work with, but it could also be from client work that we do um, with our banking clients who are, who are facing the same kind of challenges that, that we're facing. And out of all that, every year we, we try and distill a handful of themes, um, things like you know, purpose goes mainstream is one that we've been thinking about for a number of years, right? This idea that it used to be only a very small number of companies that embedded purpose into their business, right? You could buy Bomba's socks or Tom's shoes or shop at Patagonia. And you knew that those were brands that had a purpose that was interwoven into their very business. And then a lot of other brands thought about what they did and then what they did to do good as related but somewhat separate things. And, and we've been watching for years now this idea that purpose was going to get fully integrated into business. And where that comes from is, is trying to tease out when do you start hearing signals that resonate on, around a theme from different areas in your life? Like when do your parents bring up something that you also heard about at work, 
When do you hear from you know another investor that your kids were also asking you about? Um, and we try and do that same thing within City Ventures, which is where when these signals come together from very different places, it's a pretty good indication that there's some accelerating irreversible trend to pay attention to. And and certainly COVID has affected all of that. And you're you're intersecting now this purpose-driven movement with the trends of what's going on in the pandemic. So how has that changed your thought process, if at all? So, so certainly one thing that's changed is in my job, I used to have to spend a lot of time convincing people that disruption was a real thing. Uh, I now have to spend zero minutes doing that. We've all lived through really three and a half different crises over the past year, right from the pandemic to sort of massive economic dislocation to crisis around racial equity. By the way, all of these things already existed. Just 2020 sort of ripped the Band-Aid off and said made it impossible for anyone to not see what was happening. How has it affected us? I think you know, one, it's made me proud of the work that we've done at City, whether around racial equity. Uh, or just around the work that we've done on, on wealth inequity and income inequity. We, we've been working on a platform for a couple of years that we launched in April of last year uh, called Worthy that was all about how could we help people earn more money. So as an example, you, you hear all the time about upskilling and reskilling, but people are trying to upskill. Right. In the U.S., we've got $1.6 trillion worth of unpaid student debt. You shouldn't need any more information than that to know that people are trying to upskill, but they haven't been able to connect what skills they need to the ability to put more money in their bank account. Uh, and so we said, well, we could use a lot of publicly available data to launch a platform that allows you to go on and say, hey, my name is Vanessa. I have 30 years of experience. I'm a school teacher in San Francisco. What can I do to improve my skill set? What can I do to increase my paycheck? Well, it turns out if you're a school teacher here in San Francisco, the answer is learn Mandarin. Because in this location, dual language Chinese education is really sought after. Uh, but I started my career as a school teacher in Brooklyn. And if I were still sitting there, the answer is Spanish. So when you think about sort of how do we how do we help address some of these massive trends, whether it's climate change or inequity or racial justice? You know, we think it's a combination of providing people with tools to make effective decisions um, and then working differently, you know, creating different kinds of partnerships, because none of these are issues that any one of us is going to independently solve. We're going to have to figure out how companies, governments work together in new structures in order to make some headway. You know, it, it, it makes total sense. Uh, at the same time that you're doing all that, you're trying to figure out what is going to change again as we start to reopen the economy and create some level of normalization. So, so what are your thoughts there, Vanessa, in terms of things have changed and we accept that there's been a massive acceleration of certain things uh, but then some things will go back or maybe no things will go back. What, where do you think we will be six or 12 months from now in terms of trend assessment? Yeah, so I think, you know, as you, as you see all the stimulus, not just here in the U.S., um, but in many countries around the world and particularly here, um, I think there's, there's 
you know, pretty good consensus that, you know, we, there will be a lot of sectors that do come back. Uh, I, I tend to be more focused because I think I'm interested in pointing innovation at, at the places of greatest need. Um, I think in my group, we tend to be focused on, okay, it's great if, if some sectors come roaring back, but what about all those small businesses that weren't able to make it? What about all those people who, you know, had, you know, eviction moratoriums, but, um, but nonetheless are sort of well behind in, in rent and trying to think about how to get back on their feet. So I think, you know, we've, we've had a, a miraculous year from a, um, a, a medical perspective in terms of the vaccines, obviously a devastating year in terms of the, the, the health effects and, and mortality around the world. But, but the vaccines are nothing like I think we ever would have expected if you and I had, had been having this conversation a year ago. Um, and, and so I think we will see improvement. In, and I just think we're, we're actually going to have to remain vigilant around the things that don't change, um, as opposed to getting kind of back on the wagon of, you know, now there's 5G, now there's 6G, now, you know, that, those things will all happen, but we've got some real scars from what we've all been through around the world that I think we're going to have to retain focus on. So we're in agreement that companies are moving for more social purpose, for more positive change. Um, could you share some examples of what Citibank is doing in that space in terms of what you guys are thinking about? Uh, sure. Just a couple of, of quick, but I think important ones. I mean, they, we've talked a little bit about income inequity. Citi was the first uh, first company, first major bank that came out with um, an unadjusted gender and racial pay gap numbers, right? With the idea that if we're not willing to talk about the fact that there are discrepancies between pay for, for different people, then it's going to be really hard to ever solve that problem. And so, you know, I think that's an important one. We obviously uh, launched a number of initiatives totaling over a billion dollars in 2020 to address racial equity um, and racial equality, right? How do we think about, I mean, one that my team is involved in is how do we think about using our impact fund at City to support black entrepreneurs um, who we all understand get a minuscule fraction of venture capital funding, um, all the way to, you know, leveraging some of our municipal relationships around the world to help cities rebuild, right? We talked earlier about how small businesses have really been impacted over the past year. So how do we help those cities attract investment? How do we get those businesses sort of back up and running? Uh, so a, a wide variety of activities, but again, I think importantly tied to the our business um, being separate. And that, that was something really important to us, uh, particularly when we launched the racial equity work was how do we do that in a way that is that's fully tied into the core of city's business. I, I think it's very well said, but you also have the dilemma of balancing risk, risk management, the regulatory scrutiny that you guys are under with all of the concepts of innovation. So how do you make that balance work, Vanessa? Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes give the analogy I said earlier, you know, we can't have 200,000 people coming to work at City every day and deciding that they want to experiment. It's a little bit like going into surgery and lying on the cot with that little tiny blanket on top of you. 
and having your surgeon walk by and say, Anthony, I thought this afternoon I'd try something new. And you that think to my, yourself- That was my brain surgeon, by the way, Vanessa. That's probably some of the problems that I've had in my life. That was my brain surgeon that did that to me. Yeah, well, if that happened, you said, man, yeah, I don't want you to try something new. I just want you to do the thing that you do that's predictable, that's repeatable. I don't want volatility in this situation. So yeah, we've we've thought about this a lot at City, and we've worked over the last uh, certainly decade, I can speak for my group at the company, in making sure that we have systems to be able to experiment without introducing risks. So let me give you one example of that. We talked about D10X earlier, which is our internal incubator. Um, we've developed a process whereby we can test ideas before we actually move a dollar, um, put anything into market. And while that sounds incredibly obvious, you'd probably be surprised at the number of large companies that when someone has an idea, they pitch that idea and a senior person says, okay, I like that idea. And they go and build it and they do it. Um, we do just the opposite. Someone has an idea and then we say, okay, let's first validate the idea before we go into building it and putting it into production. So just that simple switch of sort of the order of operations lets us create an environment that is safe and doesn't introduce incremental risk for people to experiment. And I think that's been really important to our ability to explore new innovations at City because you know, we, we work in an industry that does not, it's not the right place for like fail fast and break things, right? That is not how, how we think about things as you know, in financial services. But, you know, listen, I, I guess I have a, uh, a bias towards city because of my experience. Uh, you know, Mike Corbett and I became personal friends after the transaction where we bought a business from you guys. Jane Frazier and I have also uh, developed a relationship because of that. And it does seem like you, you guys have a culture that is a little bit more entrepreneurial um, than most. And so, so why is that, Vanessa? Because you like working there, of course, and the, and uh, you're an innovator. So, what is it about City's culture that makes it work? Yeah, it's a that's a really great and insightful question. I don't I don't get that question a lot, um, but I've thought about it a lot. So, I think you know, City is um, it's a a very multifaceted institution. Obviously, we operate in you know more than 100 countries around the globe and many different businesses. And therefore, I would say, well, well, lots of companies are large. City is multifaceted. And so it, it tends to attract people who are problem solvers. So when we look at the kinds of traits that entrepreneurs have, you know, they're, they're curious, they're, they're brave, they're tenacious, they're, they, they're empathetic, they try and put together teams of people who are diverse and think about things in different ways. We find a lot of those same traits in employees at City. And, and my own hypothesis is that because of the multifaceted nature of the company, it actually, it, people self-select for some of those traits. Uh, and therefore, you know, I, I believe that a lot of the innovation that we've been able to drive at City, we have been more successful because of our employee base, because we have a group of people who, um, who thrive in an environment that 
have, there are many different things going on and your career can be you know one year in the consumer bank and the next year in treasury services, right? There are lots of different kinds of, of challenges to tackle. And so I really do believe that it comes down to kind of the, the character and sort of the, the passions of our employees and have really been the fuel for us to be successful. Before I turn it over to our resident millennial who will ask the real spiffy questions about the new economy, give me some predictions that you have about our near-term and our intermediate-term future. Um, well, near-term future, I think, you know, it, it's so fun. Human nature is so fine, right? None of us, none of us love change. Um, and, and, you know, none of us love having to be super adaptable. And, and we're also generally very bad with any sort of information that has latency or probability attached to it. And so we've been living for more than a year now around the globe in many situations that none of us thought we would ever be in. In fact, if we were doing this in another era, we would have met in person <laughs> rather than over Zoom. Um, and and yet people uh, and are- I've been wearing a lot of makeup, by the way, but if we were meeting in person, I'm just letting you know my hair and makeup would have looked terrific on that day. But keep going, Likewise. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Likewise, see that? Darcy's hair and makeup, he doesn't need it, unfortunately, but you know, you and I would have looked great. <laughs> So go ahead, tell me these predictions. Yeah, so so I think, you know, right now people are in this, this mode of like, it's so hard to see when sort of the, the fog might lift, right? In the same way that a year ago, it was so hard for any of us to see how radically our lives were going to change. Uh, and and so I actually believe that, that you know, given we talked about vaccines earlier, um, I, I am optimistic that that things will start improving faster than people expect right now because our expectations are we're sort of in this like, oh, my gosh, what if it's like this for years? Um, and so I think we will start to see uh, we will start to see things reopen as more of the world gets vaccinated. Obviously, that's predicated on as a globe, us making sure that. Um, that countries all have access to vaccination. So, um, and as we do, just as in the pandemic, you saw certain sectors boom and other sectors suffer. Um, we'll see the same thing, you know, coming out of that. Um, what's been interesting from from my vantage point is that, you know, the, at the beginning of the pandemic, we weren't sure if, from a startup perspective you know, we were going to see sort of a, a real slowdown in activity. Um, and actually, we, we didn't. Um, we, we've seen, whether you look at the fintech sector or venture capital overall, um, we've seen really robust activity all the way through 2020, with maybe the exception of March of last year. Um, and so I think that will, that will continue. We've seen entrepreneurs sort of pivot their businesses, figure out how they can con continue to grow. So I think we'll see sort of more developed sectors you know, emerge just as you'd expect as, as people are able to do things like travel again. Uh, and, and you'll see in, in my world, uh, you, we have not seen so much of a slowdown in the startup world. So I don't expect that that will change. So my colleague, John Dorsey has questions for you, um, but this has been a fascinating conversation and uh, uh, congratulations on everything that you're doing. Thank you, I appreciate that.
Yeah, finally get my opportunity here. It's actually mandated in my contract, as I say on some of these talks, that I get at least one third of the airtime. So thank you, uh, Anthony, for fulfilling that contract. But I want to talk about uh, Purpose Goes Mainstream and Citizenship, which is sort of the name for Citigroup's uh, ESG type of effort. So we, we also did a recent talk uh, with a couple investors, prominent investors that focus on ESG. Uh, and, and I think there's two categories of people that are involved in the ESG space. There's people that are paying lip service to tick a box so that they can uh, go out and say that they're implementing ESG initiatives. And there's people that uh, genuinely dive deep into these metrics and, and uh, meaningfully enact change through initiatives going on at their company and at companies they invest in. What do you think are the primary drivers behind sort of the demand for these ESG-oriented strategies and impact investing? And what is Citigroup doing uh, maybe that's different and, and deeper than others that, that do it more uh, going through the motions? Yeah, so so great question, John. I think I think the primary drivers are a number of things. First of all, I think you know, we've already talked in this conversation about the fact that that a lot of these issues that ESG has been trying to address, by the way, ESG is, as we all know, not a new thing, uh, but it's sort of a newly embraced thing. Uh, these issues have, have existed for a long time, but they have they have risen to the point of being you know, unable to be ignored. Um, so I think that's one driver. I also think, I mean, Anthony was joking earlier about generational differences, but I do think that the push from both millennials and Gen Z to you know, take some of these societal issues much more seriously uh, has, has been a really good push. Um, you see all sorts of surveys about how, you know, how those generations feel that these are not nice to have. This isn't like the thing that you do after work. This, this has to be, uh, this has to be something that is part of what you do at work. And so I think the drivers are both, um, are both kind of, you know, the reality of these challenges becoming uh, bigger and bigger around the globe and generations of people saying, you know, enough, like stop ignoring this stuff. Um, you know, we have to, we have to pay attention. I do think to your point, there still are, you know, there's some places that sort of talk the talk and some places that walk the walk. Uh, and, you know, I've, as I mentioned before, I'm really proud to be at City because I think, you know, we we haven't necessarily rushed into things. I think, some, you know, when you rush into things, you got to build the right infrastructure to, to really be able to do things like issue green bonds and, and make these things part of the natural course of business, right? Why is that the case? Well, it turns out, you know, to issue green bonds, you've got to be able to, to tag your assets as to whether they're green or not. And many companies haven't done that yet. So how do you how do you help do that? So I think we have been very sort of both forward leaning and methodical about building you know, the structures necessary to make ESG a core part of what we do. Uh, and uh, and I think that's that. That is an accelerating and irreversible trend, and and you'll see you know many companies move in that direction. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And so, what's the next iteration of this? You talked about how we went from you know, ESG existed, but uh, maybe there wasn't the same level of investment or application of ESG, uh, the ESG mentality in businesses and investment institutions. Where are we potentially in ten years if this framework continues to take hold? What are concrete steps uh, you know that companies can take to drive these positive social changes and what can be the, the output from that? So let me first maybe comment, John, from the perspective of, of venture capital, um, since I spent a lot of my, my day in that space. Um, 
You know, venture capitalists are obviously looking for companies that they think they can scale. And part of that scale is to be able to exit in a, in a way that returns capital to, uh, to all the LPs. And, you know, part of having confidence about investing in a startup is having confidence that there's that pathway to that startup having an exit at some point. Um, you know, there was a lot of green investing when I first came to Silicon Valley 20 years ago, um, but there, there, it wasn't as widespread because there weren't any really good examples, like scaled examples that you could point to of entrepreneurs being successful. Um, the good thing about venture capital is it is a virtuous cycle. Uh, and once people start to see companies that are able to exit successfully, then that will cause more capital to flow into those types of companies. So, you know, through our impact fund at City, we've got, you know, $200 million impact fund focused on ESG and black owned businesses. And we see many more companies today, many more entrepreneurs successfully raising capital, whether it's for things like um, sustainable energy or workforce development, things that, that would have been niche a decade ago are now sort of part of the, the general sort of flow of capital. And, and part of the reason for that is, is, is that virtuous cycle. You've seen some success and that will beget more success. So if you ask me about 10 years from now, uh, you will see many more companies that one might have thought about, you know, when I was at MIT, we, we did a lot of, you know, we were young, like you are now. And, and, you know, we did a lot of dreaming about like, what if this technology could be used for this good, right? And then, then you sort of grew up and thought, well, no one's going to, no one's going to fund me to use that technology for this good. Well, now people will, and so you will see many more companies. Uh, we just uh, are investing in one right now. Because I can't disclose yet because it's not public, but really interesting way of thinking about how do you how do you modify energy usage to reduce the this the pressure on the grid? Obviously, super timely given what happened in Texas. Um, and ten years from now, that those will all be mainstream companies, and and hopefully, we'll be really proud investors in in many of them. So I want to go back to an earlier comment you made. It wasn't in your official bio, but you mentioned that you were part of the uh, founding group, founding core uh, for Teach for America, which is a fantastic organization. I had a lot of friends uh, from college that, that went into Teach for America before going on to their maybe full-time career, whether it be as a lawyer or a uh, technology investor or founder. Um, uh, it's a, a multi-part question about, you know, why do you think teachers, and my, my mom was an educator, um, she worked for an organization uh, in addition to teaching in a classroom called Newspapers in Education, where she took uh, content that was in local newspapers, went to low-income school districts and taught teachers how to leverage uh, current events, things that were happening in the real world to teach their students about various concepts. So uh, what is your outlook for education? Why do you think teachers are well-suited like you were, you know, you went from a teaching background into a successful career in venture capital. Why, why do you think teachers are well-suited uh, to be potentially technology investors and, and forecast trends and understand human behavior? Uh, and what are your, uh, what's your outlook for education given, you know, COVID has sort of accelerated our move into a digital world and given people an idea of how we can scale quality education. So I know there's a lot in there about your background as a teacher, uh, but I just find it fascinating that you came from Teach for America and, and I think teachers are well-suited to, to follow the path you have, but try to unpack all of that that I just threw at you. 
All right, I'll do my best in a few minutes so you get all of your airtime. Um, so why are teachers well-suited? I talked before about a couple of traits that, um, that we think are really important for driving change. Um, uh, you know, curiosity, being empathetic, bringing in diverse points of view, being brave or tenacious. Um, I, I think, you know, teachers, teachers really embody a lot of those traits and, you know, we can certainly um, speak for, you know, many, many of us around the world who have realized in 2020 um, with our children at home and unable to go to school, just how important <laughs> those teachers are and, and how, you know, how important having, having kids get access to people who, who think in those ways, how important that is. So, you know, why do I think teachers are, first of all, I think, you know, many people are well-suited to do lots of things. And so, you know, many, many people will have very diverse careers, you know, in the future. Um, but I do think, you know, teachers, teachers ultimately are very good listeners um, because you have to be to maintain control of a classroom. Um, I, I remember when I first moved into corporate America and someone asked me, you know, how did I manage that meeting that people were so difficult? I said, I used to teach 42 eighth graders at once. Like, that's difficult. <laughs> you know, adults are actually generally reasonably well-behaved. Um, so I think, you know, teachers have a lot of passion, a lot of, a lot of grit, a lot of, you know, intellectual preparation. And, and those are all things that the economy, you know, is sorely in need of both in the education sector and in other sectors. Um, where do I think education will go? I think, you know, some sectors were already, you know, very disrupted well before 2020, right? If you think about um, news and media, I, I think about um, retail, right? lots of things had gone on. You know, there are a handful of sectors like, like healthcare, financial services, education that had not been through that same level of disruption. Uh, and I think, you know, many people thought, even though you know some of us who are passionate about education reform, you know, felt like you know the the old school like way schools work didn't have to stay the same for a hundred years. It, it could have moved forward, but but and there by the way there are lots of education reform that's already going on. As you mentioned, you know the work that your mother is doing, uh, but none of it ever really got scale. And 2020 was the year that education changed at scale. Now, the other thing that happened in 2020 that everyone's aware of is that education changed at scale in ways that like doubled down on the inequity of education. So, you know, a massive body of work that needs to be done for everything from, you know, folks in New York working to make broadband accessible um, in a much more equitable way, because it turns out you can't be in Zoom school if you can't get on Zoom. Uh, and and so, so 2020 both accelerated the idea that you could teach in lots of different ways. And, and I think sort of mandated us all to get much more serious about making sure that that is broadly accessible. So just like we were talking before about, you know, venture capital and, and the fact that success begets success in these sectors. Um, you know, years ago, ed tech was like a small thing. Ed tech was a thing that you did if you were a double bottom line investor, or you were interested in social, but you didn't care quite so much about what your returns look like. Ed tech will be a big place that people will put money into. Right. And you're seeing the, the Udemy IPO. They've been doing a lot of advertising uh, as well. It's just a testament to how the, the sector has grown. 
I want to dive deeper into fintech. And thank you, by the way, for unpacking that complex and meandering question that I posed to you. You did a fantastic job. Uh, but fintech, this sort of goes back to the theme that Anthony was talking about. You're working in this sprawling organization that does a lot of different things. And in the fintech space, I would say to some extent, there's a disintermediation that's happening as a result of technology and fintech. Uh, so when you're working in a, an organization like Citigroup that has a lot of, you know, I'm going to call them legacy uh, financial operations and business lines, and then you have fintech uh, that's that's potentially disintermediating some of those businesses. There's obviously exciting things happening, but you have to be sensitive to um, you know, things that are happening with your organization and things, trends that are happening in the fintech space. How do you communicate internally about, okay, this is a, an unstoppable train that's moving, and this is how we need to sort of uh, position ourselves to, to not be left behind by it, but at the same time, not fully disrupt what we think are, are good models for, for running our business. But again, uh, somewhat of a meandering question, but, but within the framework of a large, large organization, how do you look at fintech and identify which trends uh, you try to sort of help accelerate and which ones you, you know, uh, maybe decide that, that the old way of doing things has merits and, and there's reasons to, to stick with them? Yeah. So, so a couple of things. I'll take your inside the or the organization first, and then sort of what has merits. Um, yeah. Inside the organization, I mean, it's a real dialogue. Like we're privileged to have great working relationships with our business leaders and and business operators across the company. And you know, city city is not the arbiter of of what trends are going <laughs> to move or not move, right? We have to be responsive to what, what's happening in the environment, what our clients need, how we bring those opportunities to our clients. And so, you know, I, I think we try and not only bring companies to bear and, and help entre entrepreneurs be successful, but we spend a lot of time on thought leadership. We talked at the beginning of this discussion about, you know, themes, et cetera, right? We, we try and contextualize a lot of the change so that it's easier for people who have a 24 by seven day job running a large business, right? Who aren't afforded the opportunity to meet thousands of entrepreneurs every year, right? We try and distill what we're learning from the outside and bring that in so that our operators can make decisions that they need to make about their businesses. Um, the other thing I would say is that that you know, very rarely, not never, but very rarely in life, um, does change happen instantaneously. Uh, that that's both a bad thing because actually humans are really good at recognizing instantaneous change and really bad at recognizing change over time, which is why everybody knows the story story of the frog in the boiling pot of water. Um, but it's really good because it does give us time to adapt, and and I think. That, that dialogue that we have with our businesses, the, the exchange of ideas, the, you know, the pushback that we get from them sometimes about, you know, you're busy talking about this trend, but we see it differently over here. You know, that, that's a two-way conversation. And I think the robustness of that conversation is probably the thing that makes me most heartened about, you know, where, where we end up as change continues to happen and how we serve our clients. Because, this isn't about, you know, tomorrow morning we're going to wake up and everything's going to be different, but also not everything's going to be exactly the same. And, and helping each other see that continued evolution of change, I, I think, is, is a big part of what we do. 
And going back to Anthony's prior comments about city, I think it's a credit to the organization that they're willing to to have those conversations and to have people you know, tell them uh, where things are moving and how they need to change, as opposed to just sort of building walls and and uh, trying to defend the old way of doing things. But Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today. Anthony, do you have any final words uh, for Vanessa before we let her go? No, listen, I think it was it's a it's a phenomenal conversation, and I think uh, you've left no doubt that people inside of very large scale corporations uh, can see innovation, invest in innovation, uh, make bold decisions. And in some ways you're getting the benefits of both of those things. You're getting the benefits of the scale and infrastructure of Citibank with the nimbleness of your astute leadership and entrepreneurship. So congratulations, Vanessa. Uh, Don't let these millennials beat you down. I'm, I'm counting on you, okay? I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part over here on the Salt Talks, Vanessa. I'm expecting you to do the same. Excellent. Listen, thank you, Anthony. Thank you, John. Real pleasure to uh, to be with both of you today. Appreciate the invitation. Uh, Thanks again, Vanessa. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning into today's Salt Talk. We love educating people on a variety of different topics, and it's great to get the perspective that I think is a unique perspective uh, that Vanessa brings. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this Salt Talk or any of our previous talks, you can access them all for free on our website and on our YouTube channel, our website salt.org backslash talks to access all these salt talks. And our YouTube channel is called Salt Tube. We post all of our episodes on demand there as well. We're on social media. We're most active on Twitter at Salt Conference, which we hope to have Vanessa in person at one of our future Salt Conferences. Uh, But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook and looking to grow our audiences there. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We love, again, educating people. Uh, We like to be a resource on a variety of different topics covering finance, tech, and policy. Uh, So please spread the word. And on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.